Welcome to the R&R Experience Podcast. Today's episode is dedicated to Mr. Claiborne J. Christian Jr. He is the loving father of Clay Christian, who is a dear friend and a panelist on today's episode. Mr. Christian passed away shortly after this episode was recorded. We would like to extend our deepest condolences to Mrs. Christian, his son Clay, daughter-in-law Karen, and grandchildren Kaylin and CJ, as well as the entire Christian family. Mr. Christian left an indelible imprint on the hearts of many, and his legacy will live on. Rest well. Welcome to the R&R Experience Podcast. My name is Raquel, not Rachel, and the other host is Regina, not Regina. We want to thank you for joining our show today. This is part two of our conversation we had with a group of men. In part one, they defined what it means to be a man. They talked about relationships and friendships. In part two, we look at self-care, health and wellness. We look at sex and intimacy. We take a deeper dive and get some other questions answered. Sit back and enjoy. Thanks for joining. And we're going to dive into fatherhood because we talked about being a man and the definition of that. So the question we have is, how has your relationship with your father influenced you as a father or the father you hope to be? So I have a great relationship with my dad. I think we talked about it last week that we would stay in the same room and watch the game and just laugh. And so we were kind of always on the same wavelength. And I have tried to emulate that with my children, not living in the same state. You know, my dad and I used to do these projects. Um, we work on cars or work on stuff together. And so I learned stuff, and my grandfather would be right there with him, you know, and I learned stuff from them that I have not been able to translate to my children because we don't live in the same state, and so the setup is not the same. You know, my grandpa had land, my dad had land, so we were always doing stuff tractors and cutting grass and rebuilding stuff. And I, I don't have that in the state of Florida. Now, and you, my son and I have done a lot of stuff together. Days I feel guilty because there was a lot of stuff that not only was I taught, but I caught just by being around. And he just hasn't had that opportunity. So that's what I was trying to do is for him to learn how to be a man by just hanging out with being a man, you know? driving and riding and going places. He learned how to drive early because he was riding with me. So I let him drive my truck and I let him go do stuff and I let him look at a gun and hold a gun and all of the stuff that I did because I'm a country boy at heart. And, you know, I thought that was great just to be with the guys growing up. My dad's name, same as mine, but they called him Chris. So I was little Chris. And so then I got to be bigger than my dad, and everybody called me Lil' Chris, and I'm a giant over my father. Now, CJ's bigger than me. And so he, rightfully, he's Big Chris, and I'm Lil' Chris still. So I've never gotten out of the box. But I just was thinking that that is what we want to have. I think if we had more of those relationships, so as young folks have their children, don't neglect them, don't go other places, have them with you because they will appreciate it and you get to demonstrate who you are to them without saying a word. Okay. I mentioned in part one, my father wasn't shit. So I do the opposite and so far so good. It's a short and sweet answer. Mm -hmm. 
my daughter was, I just held her up to the camera. She's getting ready to go to bed. So I thought y'all could meet her since the question was relevant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> as far as, I didn't hear that you said a father to be. So I can actually chime in. I guess I idolized my dad and I thought he knew everything. And then once I realized he didn't, it kind of changed the perspective and then gave me more creative control to, to define what being a father could be. Um, and I think I still have a lot on the table to figure out and experience and learn. And ultimately, it's going to take becoming a father to get to that step. But I can prepare by being the best version of myself and learning how to master my own mind and how I approach situations and how I control my emotions, etc. So if I work on myself, by the time I become a father, I believe that I can pass down all of these things that I've learned just by being a good example. And it should come pretty pretty easily. So that's my take on that. What do you guys think being a good father is for you? I would think different generations have a different thought process. But when you, when someone asks you, what does being a good father, what would you say? Is it just being able to provide financially or having a balance financially and emotionally involved? I think the role of being a good father comes in tune with, yes, financial support, of course, but in my eyes, emotional and presence is pretty important. And the idea of having, being a father and being there for someone that when they have questions arise or any situation arises, that the child feels comfortable with that person to express themselves and be themselves and ask questions most importantly, because kids just soak in information and they're curious of everything. So I think that's important is to have as a father, I mean, it doesn't matter really the gender, but being a role model more importantly for that child and being a safe space and not controlling them, not pushing them to become something what the father envisions their child. And that can come in big and small ways, but I think more so allowing the kid to develop into who they truly are at heart and who they want to become rather than kind of guiding them. You know what I mean? As any father would put their kid in the football and you know, make them play sports and maybe that kid likes arts and they don't want anything to do with sports. So a lot of those situations, but yeah. That's good. As the old man here, I have such a love hate with football. So I wanted my son to play. Because I knew he was going to have some genes and maybe he could do a little bit more than what I did, right? And so he has the size. But what he doesn't have is because, because I was the fat kid, I was always angry, right? So my gift is the same gift that the Hulk had for 25 years. Mm -hmm. I was always angry. So that made me a good football player. My son, who was a big boy, but he was a nice guy. He's, he's not angry. So he doesn't like the contact. He doesn't like the pop. In fact, when he was doing martial arts, before he would jump on him to kill him, he would back off. I'm like, boy, what you doing? But what he ended up <coughs> developing into is a great percussionist. And so his gifts unfurled right as I was watching him practice on the drum pad. He just became that guy. And now, like in the, in the marching band and, and all of that stuff, but football wasn't his thing. He did not like the contact. So when we had him in there as a young man, he didn't like it. He loves basketball, but he doesn't have the height, right? 
he when he got in band, everything came out. And so you guys are right. I did it wrong. I was nudging him in the direction that I wanted him to go. And my daughter told me when she went off to college, she went to a concert in Atlanta, right? And so I said, well, wait a minute. We just dropped you off in Tallahassee. How are you going to Atlanta? She said, respectfully, Dad, I didn't even have to tell you. And so you can't make them do nothing. They will do what they end up doing. And so you just got to be supportive. And when, it, when it's time for them to circle back around, you need to be there and be stable so you can help them with whatever their issue is. But you can't nudge them. Um, they both have great intellect as well as great intuition and insight. I said, you know, y'all ever thought about studying psychology? They said, no, Dad, I'm going to leave that to you. And so both of them have the gift. They could do it if they wanted to. I love to pass it down like the white boys do, pass the practice down to the next generation. <laughs> but they want to do other stuff. And it's okay. You know, let them do whatever they want to do and let them figure that thing out for themselves because just like CJ didn't want to play football because he didn't have, he had nothing to prove. Right? So... They have to get in their position to do the things that they need to do, no matter what you say. And all you can do at, at this point is watch them and encourage them and be available for them, make sure things are handled so they can hit the ground running. But you can't tell nobody what to do. Yeah, I like that. I think that's good because I think a lot of people do push their children to maybe be something that they weren't or try to push them in the direction of how they think they should go. And you end up with a lot of adults that get into careers that they absolutely hate. And I think a lot of those people, when COVID hit, they realize, you know, I've been doing somebody else's dream for a long time. And I think it's time that I do mine. So I think that that's when the shift happened. What do you really want to do? This is your opportunity now. So I think that's a good statement you made. We have to let our kids just do their thing <laughs> with guidance, of course. Yes. But you think about anxiety and depression and some issues that some of the kids encounter. Some of that is that conflict, that struggle they have with their parents and pushing back saying, no, I want you to go to this college. I want you to study this major and do X, Y, and Z. I, I'm sure you guys see a lot of that in your practice. I worked with a doctor two years after he was in practice who was hating every day. And we had to back him out of his practice and then He'd already given eight years over to medical school, so he didn't want to leave medicine, but he had to find something else in medicine for him to do. And he just talked about, he just was so full of anxiety and regret for having just followed what his parents said do all the way to that point. And he never stopped it along the way. You know, so you're right. So I guess you guys touched upon this a little bit, but the hardest challenge of being a parent, what would you say uh, that would be? So my daughter has developmental and speech delays. Uh, she's three years old and she's not hitting the milestones as far as talking. Um, we've done a lot of, well, she's had like three, four different surgeries uh, and uh, it's still an ongoing process. Like after the last one that she had, they did a couple of things at once. Uh, like we've noticed an improvement, like she's talking more. 
But now in follow-up, they're saying, oh, well, she might not even be hearing out of one of her ears, you know, and she's Mm -hmm. doing early intervention and um, speech therapy and all of this other stuff. And it's working with the the healthcare system, a lot of broken systems, you know. And so I think that has been kind of hard. And of course, you know, you give your your child everything that they need, but then there's things out of your control. So the, like the patient's part, uh, but also I wrote an essay about the whole journey um, and the title of it was removing should from my vocabulary. So instead of saying, well, she should be talking or she should have, you know, been able to get an appointment for a hearing test before September, which is the current appointment date. And we're in April uh, to, to be able to get a follow-up, you know, uh, and just working with the process. But I think that's been kind of the hardest part that and she's three years old and is the tantrums are getting (laughs) like now that she can hear herself better. She screams louder. And Ah. (laughs) I told her earlier today, I quit and she kept screaming. So Mm -hmm. she said, well, I don't. I tried to return her, but they said I can't because it's past the return window and she don't fit into the original box. It was a whole thing. So the hardest part as I look back, is there is no handbook, okay? So even though you modeled after people who did a fairly good job, you still, once again, you still have your own race. Kaylin was three, and I was holding off. I was like, well, no. So both my mother and my mother-in-law were like, you need to spank her. And I was like, "Ah, okay. So, you know, I did, I tapped her a little bit, but both of my kids like they're going to go back at you. Like, you spank them. They, I want more. Like, they pledge a cap or something, you know? I want more. Yes, sir. May I have another? They are back at you. So we had to regroup on how to discipline them because if we continue to escalate, then one of us, them, would be hurt. Or both of them. And then they protect each other. So don't you spank my sissy. And so this little guy gets in my face I'm about to throw him out the window. And so <laughs> I used to, this is one of the things that I asked for forgiveness about. When we were working together, Rock, back in the day, I remember doing some teaching parenting. So five or six years later, I became a parent. And all the stuff I told those parents, I apologized for because I didn't know anything <laughs> about anything. And then I'm teaching these people about parenting and I had no kid. And I said, I don't know how you can shake your kid to death. Man, I know, I know how you, you know how. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. how. You, hey, I know. And so it's nothing but the Lord to keep me from having killed one of them cats already, right? <laughs> and so you know, it's just those things that you don't know, and you're walking into it, and, you, and, you, and everything is beautiful, and then you get the reality of the mm-hmm. of everything. The the talking back. One day you're cool, one day you're not. A projectile. Everything that comes out of all directions, up against the walls, all of that stuff that you have, falling off the changing tables, all of the things that have happened. The blessing is that kids are resilient and parents, parents are resilient. Yes. You know, and make if love is the overriding factor, then everything is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, they have that saying, good enough parenting. You guys probably know what that means, but I think... As a parent, when I entered parenthood, I thought things had to be perfect and I had to get everything just right. <clears throat> you, you do good enough so that your kids don't, 
you don't kill them, you don't harm them too much. But, <laughs> you know, and if you get in that mindset, then I think it helps you along the way that you won't have all the answers. There's no way that you're going to have all the answers. So you do good enough parenting. It's good enough. Second babies are good enough. I mean, second babies get the diapers from Walmart as opposed to <laughs> the name brand stuff, you know. True. <laughs> yeah. yeah you start... I did all organic for my first child. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I made all her baby food. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did all of I'm that. The, I'm the second child. So <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, boy. Also, guys, let me tell you one more thing. That forgiveness muscle for your partner, y'all have to have it real big and really developed because those children create a lot of dissension between you two. And so you guys have to, you know, agree to disagree and come to some agreement and then forget the reason for the argument because you guys are coming to it from two different perspectives. And good kids, good kids can exploit those differences. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a good point. Mm-hmm. It's very good. I work with a lot of teenagers as a therapist, and uh, I especially see it when parents are in the middle of a separation or divorce. It's even worse because when you're getting a separation or a divorce, your breakdowns in communication and co-parenting are like right out there in the front. Uh, But kids are manipulative, (laughs) not because they're evil, but just it's human nature to veer in a direction that's easier. So if you see a hole in a system, you're going to work it. I think that's human nature. So if you're not on, like he said, if you're not on your communication and being a united front, then the kids are going to find a way to, you know, work it in their advantage. So I can see how that could be applicable in a relationship where you're still in the same household. So, so- what takes precedence? Is it the marriage or children? I think it depends on who you're talking to. Uh, because in my relate, I can only speak from my vantage point. Uh, I do a better job at asserting my being an individual uh, as a part of a relationship and as a part of being Maya Jane's parent. But I don't take being somebody's husband or being somebody's father as my whole identity. So I'm still John Zell, I'm still a runner, I'm still a reader, I'm still a therapist, I'm still a writer, I'm still all these things that made me, me. I happen to be in a relationship, I happen to be somebody's father, and those are important parts of my life, but I don't let it completely consume and define me. I would say, for my wife, I think she uh, wasn't as well developed in who she was when she became a parent. So she easily loses herself in that if her child isn't okay, she's not okay. Like it's, it's harder to, and also I think for the marriage part, uh, one of the things that we've talked about over and over and worked through is that it's almost like kind of push the relationship to the side because the child is here. And like only focusing on her, you know, Uh, despite when you're single or when you're before you have a child, you're like, I'm not going to be one of these people who, you know, loses themselves in being a parent or whatever. She was one of the people who said that. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So remember when you said that you weren't going to be that person who's all about (laughs) being somebody's mommy? 
you're doing mm-hmm. it. So uh, it's always easier to idealize when you don't have children or when you don't, when you're not married or something and say that when I'm married, I'm going to do this. Or when right. I have a child, I'm going to do this. And then you get there and you're like, Oh, this is what's happening. Right. <laughs> the so, reality. Uh, yeah. And so the, the, the question you asked is complex because even within the same relationship, it could be two different things. Like I'm very much, I can compartmentalize, you know, career and parenthood and relationship and hobbies and passions and stuff like that. Whereas uh, my wife, her personality, she just struggles a little bit more with that. Uh, but I think each couple, each relationship, each family or parenting dynamic is going to look very different. So I can only speak from my vantage point, um, but that's my complicated answer to the question. Cam, you jumping in here, man? I know these are. I feel like he can. I feel like he can answer nuances to these questions based on his ideal or what he wants in the future. I think that his perspective is important too. Yes, absolutely. If I'm being honest, I don't even know if I wanted to have a kid. I would fixate it on a dog for the longest. So, <laughs> and plus, again, my opinion is it's not going to be as valid, to say the least, because I can say all I want, but I haven't experienced what it's like to be to be a parent. So it's tough for me. I can speak from the child's point of view and I can speak from my ideals and my experiences of what I've seen happen to my parents. But it's hard for me at the end of the day to put myself in their shoes because I've never lived what it's like to be a father or, you know, a parent in general. I think that's an important perspective too, to just to say, like, I don't know if I want to be a parent because uh, when I met my wife, she came from i think she's she's one of three so she in her mind she wanted two or three kids and i wanted zero so um the compromise was one so one and done Uh, but i'm meeting more and more i work with a lot of young people and a lot of people are saying they don't want children and i i can really understand because first of all climate change is no ho Uh, And it's scary, but also just the world that we live in, uh, you know, but and it's expensive. So there's those things. Plus, uh, having multiple children is not necessarily what people are focusing on nowadays. So I I do believe that your perspective of if you don't know you want to have children is very important to the conversation because you could be a parent and not have children. I have a child, but I would say that a big chunk of my parenting energy goes to the person that I mentor right now. Uh, In fact, I worry, I think more about uh, this particular 18 year old than I do about my own child sometimes. So uh, parenting or giving back to the next generation doesn't necessarily mean like having your own offspring. So yeah. And I think, I think uh, growing up, you have the American dream. And that has pushed, society has pushed so many expectations on us. And I'm like, I run the opposite way from those. So just considering with everything going on now, I can't speak for 10 years in the future, but there's a lot of crazy things going on. And, you know, you're not required to have a kid, you know, they are expensive and you can go about your life and die and just keep it pushing. Like it's that simple. So not that having a kid, it, having a kid is a big responsibility and it's a life altering thing. It changes everything. But if you don't have a kid, you still live a life full of 
experience and you can experience different things and how I want to live my life is a little bit more on the side that leads with someone that doesn't have a kid. So with all those in mind, I've always kind of leaned towards having just a dog, you know, and that's a fraction of the responsibility. Go get that dog. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> but <laughs> I was going to say something else, but Raquel I completely no lost to it. the dog. Well, I know dog. Dogs it's are a lot like of responsibility. Dogs are a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. They are. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't talk back though. They do, no, but but they they get into things. They, they crap do. on your floor. They chew things. You have to oh, come home early to take care of them. You have to walk them and feed them. You may not be able to go on vacation. All of that. Yeah. So you just described the child. I yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. So basically, that dog will be your child. Yeah. You're right. But you're not. You're not committed to them for the rest of your life. Oh, you're yeah. You're Unless committed they to have them that little. While. What does your dog have, Raquel? The little. My chip. dog has a chip, and I was adamant about getting the chip because I'm like, I can't imagine losing this dog. This is before I had the dog. I was like, I have to have the chip. Now that I have the chip. There's going to be dog lovers out there that are going to hate me. I'm thinking, why did I hit the chip? Because now the dog's going to be returned to me if it gets lost. <laughs> that sounds awful to say. You had a way I'm not out. A, I'm not a dog person at all. And I didn't know that until I got a dog. <laughs> but my kids are attached to the dog. So now we keep the dog because of that. I don't know. I always tell people, if you want to get a dog... Just know there's a lot of responsibility and commitment. The difference is that you can give your dog away, right? Typically, you can't give your kids away, right? Johnzell's saying, no, you can't give your dog away. They become part of the family. They're part of the family. So, yeah. So, anyway. It's, it's, it's like a kid, but it dies after 15 years. Or less. So, that's what I'm saying. You're not committed for the rest of your life. Okay, 15 years feels like a lifetime. <laughs> that is a long time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what I wanted to say was I have had a little bit of just a, just a threshold of experience with fatherhood. And that comes with my little brother. He's nine years younger than me. So growing up uh, with him, I, of course, I fell in love with him and, you know, carrying him around every time he cried and just being there. And my dad worked so much that he was not home a lot for me and my older brothers, uh, you know, teenage years and all the important years. But aside from that, I was there for my little brother and I was there in that that space. So I have, of course, that brotherly love for him, but a part of me feels like I helped raise him and he's kind of molded into like my shadow which is kind of dope, but that's my little tease on having a child. So I've gotten a little whiff of it and what it's like and seeing how my actions clearly get replicated. I'm literally, he's my shadow. So (laughs) what I do, he will do. And uh, seeing how I can, you know, the thing with how I influence, right. And I kind of molded him into certain things where I wish I had to go back and I had to be be humble and, and just say like, hey, I made a mistake. I didn't want to push you a certain way, but that's how it came off. And I realize that now. And you know, I had to catch myself, you know, because I'm still young and I'm still growing. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure I was being a good example for him, uh, even more so for when I make mistakes and, you know, showing him that it's okay to kind of rearrange certain things and and keep going. So I do have a little bit of experience yes. with fatherhood. Thanks for sharing that. It's good. Okay. I was going to move on. Clay, did you have something to add? No, I was just thinking I'm a third generation of 
my grandfather had five brothers. And all of them had juniors who had the thirds who have the fourths. Okay? And so I was wondering, those dead generation, all of my cousins who are whatever my grandfather's name was, the fourth, and my son, who's Claiborne the fourth, or do they think like you guys? I know my son says to me, Dad, I'm going to keep it going. Yeah, but is he, is his generation, are they really thinking about having kids and they naming the boys after themselves? Or are they more like you guys say, that people and the kids I work with, well, kids are not on their radar at all, you know? So that's a that's a good question. My son might be just blowing smoke to make me feel good, you know? <laughs> like, Dad, I ain't really going to do it, but I know that's what you want, so <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that, right? And so that's an interesting thing. I'm glad I'm hearing this because I think there has been a lot of social engineering that has happened over the last mm, 20 years. So, especially in America. So things that were foundational to Americans have changed. You're not the only one that talks about fear of the next generation and what's happening. Young people talk about that all the time, you know? And I can't imagine being 30 and worrying about the world, even though it was been teetering on the brink for a minute. We always thought it would work out. I remember thinking, First Gulf War, I was like, well, it, it may be a war, but it'll work out. And that's how it was. But you guys don't think it's going to work out. You know, it could go either way at any second. And so my question is, how has that affected the mindset of whatever the Gen Z, the Gen X, whatever they are. I don't even know the doggone Gen. <laughs> but whatever they are. They don't think like us. I'm a millennial. Millennial. I'm sorry. You're right. You're exactly right. <laughs> but you guys don't think like us. And so the whole mindset is shifted. You know, I, I was like, I'm going to have some, you know, I'm, I was going to decide between getting married or, or being a college professor. And then some things happened and the war came. And then I was like, well, yeah, you know, let's go ahead and get married. We didn't get married for another five years. But, you know, then I had to deal with some medical stuff. And so we couldn't wait to have kids, right? We're excited about it at 31, 32, 33, having kids. I'm listening to you guys, and I'm like, the whole mindset at 31, 32, 33 is different. It has totally changed. You guys are like, we don't know how long we got, so let's, let's work about, worry about the earth first. And that's huge. It's unfathomable that so many are, are like not even worried about it. Kids are the last thing. Let's worry about living. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So that's monumental, y'all. I think that's all due to the internet, social media. So the difference between, and I, I've explained this to my parents so many times, is I have compassion for you guys because you guys grew up in a completely different time. You know, everyone that grew up pre-internet, you did not have that access and for you to gain information, you had to go, you know, either learn at a, at a campus, you had to take a class, you had to read a book, you know what I mean? And that's all few and beyond. But for us, 
we grew up and at a certain age, we got cell phones and the internet and Google. And we had the world in our fingertips. So we were able to pretty much dive into any interests, expose ourselves to anything, whereas you weren't exposed to everything, but pretty much what the news was telling you. So, you know, now it's a completely different ballgame. The information, everything is out there. So you're able to mold into, I mean, it goes good and bad, but it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. And that's what's shaping, you know, the new generation. I know there's a lot of single parent households. And I just wonder the single parent household and that influence on malehood. Uh, can a woman teach a boy to be a man? I don't see why not. From my perspective, uh, in my opinion, I believe that they, she definitely could. It doesn't come down to her gender. It comes down to how she runs herself and how she, how she holds her, herself, how she deals with situations, how she approaches, uh, you know, conversation. Overall, I, I definitely believe that a woman can do everything a man can do, vice versa. There's no distinction. It just, it's, it comes down to, the, there's no difference between man and woman in my mind, aside from a period. <laughs> the, a guy can learn everything that he needs to growing up. And the fact that if he grows up with a mother and, and no father figure, it puts him in tough situations that he has to deal with that might even make him a stronger man because he didn't have a father. Mm. So he had to pick up the slack because he needed to defend, let's say, his mother, right? He needed to defend the home. He needed to, to, to basically, at a young age, be the father figure in the household. And I think that might even speak more volume than having a father in certain situations. So uh, take it with a grain of salt, but that's my, my point of view on that. So. Yeah, I agree as well with the, a woman can do everything that a man can do. I would say I work with a lot of, like I said, I work with a lot of young people. I work with a lot of parents, single parents as a therapist. And the answer to that question in short is absolutely. A woman can teach a, a boy to grow into the best person that they can be. Uh, and I think I can come at it from a slightly different angle in a sense that I didn't have a father growing up, nor did I have a regular, like a male influence, uh, but not so much from my own upbringing because that was problematic anyway, but um, from just seeing other single mothers raise their children, whether their kids are my client or, you know, the mothers are my client, uh, but kind of how I approach parenthood through doing the opposite of what I saw or uh, being the father to Maya Jane that I didn't have or being the male influence to this uh, young man that I mentor, he grew up without a father as well. So we resonate on that and being able to, to him be the uh, male influence, but also the encourager uh, at that time in his life that I didn't have that when I was 18, you know? So being able to like, uh, to see ways to help somebody or to teach them or help them grow, despite not having something like uh, the person I mentor doesn't, didn't have an involved father. Uh, but I'm not trying to be his father. I'm just giving that influence, right? And not necessarily from a, oh, we're doing man stuff, right? Uh, but to be able to encourage and to 
supplement what he got from that uh, single parent household uh, with just him and his mother, right? Uh, same thing like with with me growing up in a single parent household, uh, I was able to supplement with, you know, reading books and going to school and setting my dreams for myself or asking a lot of questions of things that I didn't understand, right? I do believe that good human beings could come from situations where they don't have necessarily both parents or a traditional like father role, right? Because I'm an example of that. Uh, so, and I've just seen numerous single mothers raise up you know, great you know, young men um, who are fantastic human beings. And also, too, from the, I mean, I've never been a single mother, but I imagine they uh, focus on and encourage the traits that they wish that they had. And when, say, when they had their child, the role that the father should have played or, you know, everyone, when you're young, you have this ideal of, oh, this is the person, this is the type of person I want to have as a partner and that I want to start a family with and stuff like that. We all, like I said, before you're a parent or before you're married or before you're an adult and you have these relationships, you have an ideal in your mind. Um, obviously, reality doesn't always go 100% with what your ideal was, but you kind of have a idea in your head of what you want things to look like or the type of children that you want to have. And so I think when those needs weren't met because you ended up in a circumstance where you're a single parent, uh, you're going to work extra hard to make sure that the slack is picked up and that you make sure that your child has that despite not having all of the resources that they deserve. Uh, so that's my take. So how do y'all feel about mama's boys when people use that term mama's boys? Do y'all think it's a bad thing for a guy to be a mama's boy? Or do y'all think that's showing like the ultimate respect to his mom? It depends on the circumstance because I've seen it used as a, uh, as a put down. Um, mm -hmm. It's almost akin to calling someone feminine or soft, mm -hmm. which those are not terms that I really like, uh, think are productive. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a sense that there's a, a, a young man or a, an adult who is very close with their mom and has a, a secure attachment, which are things that you would want to have with a primary caregiver. I don't see an issue with that. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there are instances where the attachment is uh, codependent or, uh, you know, maladaptive to where uh, the bond is has poor boundaries to where the people can't live their best quality of life because of that. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some, that's me getting in my therapist bag a little <laughs> bit. Uh, but for the most part, I think when people say, oh, a mama's boy, it's more of a put down. I know because I know you, Regina, I mm -hmm. know your, your sons are really close with you. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I've observed, you know, their bond with you. Um, so I don't know if your kids have ever been called that, but I love the bond that you have. The youngest, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I love the bond that your sons have with you. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't believe that having a secure attachment with your, your parent is a problem. But I do believe that depending on what circumstances you are, people will call that into question to question your, quote, masculinity or your um, assertiveness or how much value you offer to a conversation, right? 
And then you got to think, again, I'm a therapist. I people watch Mm -hmm. and observe human behavior for a living and for hobby uh, via all the books that I read. But we digress. (laughs) Uh, But sometimes the people who are commenting and saying something about the mama's boys are people who have issues with their own attachment with their caregivers. Uh, Well, I... I think it depends on how it shows up in your relationship. So if you are Mm -hmm. catering to your mother and you're putting your mother on a pedestal, then it can be problematic if in your relationship with your wife or your partner, if they're not on a pedestal as well. So I think sometimes it comes into question during those times. Yeah. And if the man can't make decisions on his own in the marriage and mm-hmm. always has to go to the mother asked mom mm-hmm. yeah that that can be problematic because i've seen that i've seen that happen mm-hmm. and it definitely causes a rift again i've had people in couples counseling yeah and the woman is like i can't compete with his mom you know <laughs> uh, she's always going to take precedent she's always got the last say she's She's the woman of my household. She's the know? woman in the household. Oh, always, yes. She's and always right. She's always, she's always right. right. Mm-hmm. And by she, meaning the mom. The mom. So in mm-hmm. that case, the mama's boy dynamic is an attachment issue. And it's it's then taken priority over the, you know, the you've come into a relationship and a bond with this person that you're building a family with and a household with. You're supposed to of course have influence and still have a relationship with your mother, but you're supposed to be on a team with the the person that you're with, yeah. not, you know, running everything by your mom. And so if you don't have good boundaries on that, it does impact relationships. So mm-hmm. Raquel, I, I've seen that in, in action and it's messy. Um, it's messy. Or the mom who is always cooking and cleaning for her son, he doesn't know how to cook or clean for himself. <laughs> and he expects his wife to do those activities for him. That's a problem. So when people say mama's boy, it's defined in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I think it's limits because I've watched the show that comes on mama's boy. Now, those cases to me are to the extreme. One lady actually comes over every single morning to cook her son breakfast because she doesn't trust that his girlfriend is going to feed him, as she says, properly. Now, to me, that's kind of a little bit invasion of privacy because he is living with the girlfriend and for the girlfriend to wake up every morning and the lady has keys to the house and she's cooking breakfast. It's like, well, what is she supposed to do in that situation? You could be close to your mom, but I think there should be, you know, a limit. There's boundaries within it. Yeah. Do you have anything to add, Clay? Or, or No, it's Kim? an interesting, interesting conversation. I guess I'm a mama's boy, but my mama's old school, so she gonna admonish me to be a better husband. Like, mm-hmm. like get yourself together and go do the right thing over there. Like, I couldn't be no mama's boy with multiple babies or anything like that, because that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, my mama would have sent me to be with this woman and say, you know, don't come back here until you married this woman. So I listened to this podcast, y'all, and I was debating on whether I was gonna bring this out, and I'm gonna be real with you guys. I've been influenced by this podcast. Podcast is called Fearless. It's Jason Whitlock's podcast. And they talk a lot about the matriarchy has taken over from the patriarchy. I don't know. All that it, I just laugh at it because I like to throw a bomb in my house every now and then, right? And start stuff. But in all women can teach men things. Yes. 
But there are things that I learned that I didn't learn from my mama. And my mama is tough as nails. My mama was the first chemist, one of the few first few chemists in the state of Virginia. She worked with all white men. She was singular in her work, you know. And in fact, I asked my mom, I said, hey, mom, maybe I should write a book about you, you know, and all of the stuff you had to overcome. She said, man, don't even waste your time. She said, I went to work and I did my work and I did it well. And I came home and took care of you. And it was just that. That's what she was expected to do. And so that's what she did. And so to me, that is a masculine trait. So you're right. I could have learned that from her. But I also learned that from my dad because he did the same thing. He worked 32 years. And he told me, hey, hey, Clay, when we had our second baby, he said, Clay, don't have no more babies. You'll never have no more money. Right? So, <laughs> of course, my dad was right. It's either or, half in one hand, six in another. Everybody can teach everybody everything. So there is no limits on who you can learn from. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to circle back just real quickly. When I asked the question, it was more thinking of as far as if you have a Caucasian family and they adopt a black child, is love enough? No, that kid is going to need influence about its culture, right? John Zell, when you talk about supplement, that's what I was thinking about. You still need that support. So it's not about can the person teach or not? Are you going to allow other influence to come in to supplement that gap? You don't know if you're missing something until it's too late, right? I think men are important in families. I think women are important in families. And if one is absent, you got to make sure that that influence is brought in in some fashion. Mm-hmm. That's my take on it. I agree. I don't know if that's clear or not, but I can understand it from the the race perspective, because as much as we can go to basics and say race is a social construct, it's it's what this country is built upon. So we have to work within the system of race. Gender is a little bit I, I look at it differently. Mm-hmm. So like when Clay had said the thing about, you know, his his mom worked her ass off and then she came home and took care of the kids and he saw that as a masculine trait. You saw my face contort because I disagree with that statement that it's a masculine trait. But I agree that, I mean, what she did was absolutely foundational for what she taught him, right? Not, not taking care of the kids, but being the go-getter. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what I was saying was you attributed that to masculine. Right. Um, and that's just a agree to disagree right, thing. Sure, but sure. still, she did what she had to do. Sure. Right. Whereas race, on the other hand, I can speak on that perspective because I am mixed race, because I was raised by a single parent who happened to be the Caucasian parent. Uh, and I'm half African. So I didn't get exposure to that. All of what I know about being black, honestly, has been through throughout my 20s and now into my 30s, doing my own kind of education and evolution of who I am. Um, so if we're looking at, you know, did did the single parent or did the family dynamic that had a missing link, such as I'm half African, where, where was the exposure to my African side? There wasn't any, right? So when I got to adulthood, I had to expose myself, right? Um, so in with what you're saying about like, okay, if a white family adopts a black child, they need to be open to exposing that child to other influences that are not white, right? That like mm-hmm. they need to be around influences that help them come into their own on being a black person. 
So I agree wholeheartedly with that one because I'm now doing identity development in my adulthood that very well could have served me much better at a younger age. But, you know, you learn when you can based on what resources you have. So, Okay. We're going to jump ahead and talk about some physical, mental, emotional, and sexual health. So this is some good stuff here. Wanted to ask you guys, have you ever talked about intimate issues with your buddies? Do you guys talk to your male friends about whatever you're going through intimately? If you have a, a problem or a concern? Oh, that's a good question. Yes and no. I think I, I when it comes down to it, I go, if I need help and I need a second opinion on certain things, I go to the person that is, I think, best suited to help me get that answer. I have I have female friends. I have male friends. It just all depends on their mental and, and if I think that they've experienced something similar or they have good advice. That's good that you said you had female friends as well, because often wonder sometimes some people think that men and women can't be friends and you feel like, okay, well, this female friend is best suited for this, that you're comfortable enough with that female friend to have that conversation. So I think that, I think that's good. Yeah. Cause the overarching theme is like, I've, it's been way too many times where I've needed female advice for a female mm-hmm. because I just like, I, I didn't know how a female works mm-hmm. and like certain things didn't make sense to me. And I'm like, okay, I just need a female to explain what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> female perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then they, they explain it. Oh, like, oh yeah. And I'm like, cause ours um, can be okay. totally different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess I can approach that question two ways. Uh, Historically, my friends have mostly been female. Uh, I've never been one to, I don't know, I'm not opposed to having friends that are guys, but I I will say when I've had guy friends before and there's conversation around sex and intimacy and things like that, uh, I this is the reason why I don't have guy friends mm-hmm. because I'm not sitting around talking like, it's the toxic masculinity it just i'm like exactly. i don't need to be here <laughs> and i'm just like okay y'all really ain't fucking that many bitches like y'all you really didn't it you aren't as great in bed as you think you are uh, you know all of that but then uh, as far as you know being a therapist nothing is off limits as a therapist mm-hmm. like uh, literally was talking to i mean every day i'm talking to clients about sex and decisions they're making and insecurities. Uh, I just got on one yesterday. I'm like, you need to go get that plan B because you knew better, Um, you know? And um, I had another one where I'm like, hey, the medication you're taking is going to possibly have these side effects, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so uh, for me, I'm not uncomfortable with those conversations because I do it as part of my job. And I think in a way that helps me to be a safe place for a lot of people because they know that it's just a nut, like it's, it's along the lines of, okay, uh, how have you been doing with your budget this month? You know, it's like just another run of the mill kind of thing that you talk about. It's not something that's so taboo or whatever. So I'm able to be that, that safe place for other people. But um, I think through you know, my creative outlets, such as like writing and having a podcast and stuff like that, I am 
pretty open about what I talk about and stuff like that. So uh, being able to talk about, you know, intimacy or uh, challenges or confusion, insecurities and stuff like that is something that it's a muscle that you, I think you have to exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I kind of came at that from, from two different ways. So to what Raquel said, I, or maybe it was Regina about the belief that men can't have Mm -hmm. female friends Mm -hmm. or whatever Uh, that that's always been my preference just because I have very little patience for the, the toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the short answer would, I mean, I've already given the long answer, but the short answer would be like, yeah, absolutely. Conversations like that are being had. Now, what you get from certain people, like uh, Cam said, is you're going to get different things depending on who you talk to. Yeah. Um. So you got to be careful who you talk to because uh, certain people, their response will make you feel worse than what you did before you said anything. So, so I used to talk to some older guys when I was younger, when I was Cam's age. And, you know, in between all of the line that they would do, there was, <laughs> there was some wisdom. But most of the time, it was some foolishness, right? They were saying <laughs> foolishness. But there was some wisdom in that. Um, as for a man being friends with a, a woman, Raquel been my friend for almost 30 years. So that's real. Very real. But I wanted to tell you guys something funny. I was seeing a man, and he was having some issues there was a couple's thing, but I was seeing the man and he was like, look, you know, we, we only do it like four times a week and she doesn't want to do it every day. Not at me at 52. I was like, damn, he doing it four times a week. <laughs> <laughs> this dude is killing it. Damn. It's man. like, what pill is he on? <laughs> <I know exactly. laughs> four times a week. <laughs> so he was my age too. I was like, damn, man, what's wrong with me? I, four times a week. <laughs> so, um, and that's one of those things you just got to, to be real. I try to be real uh, in the situation, but I've also have a lot of couples my age now that I'm working with. And one of the things that we are talking about, except for that guy, is that love has changed and making love has changed over the decades. So in the morning on any given day of my 20s does not look like how it looks in the morning on any given day of my 50s. Okay, (laughs) And so four times a week may not be achievable in your 50s but you know may not be able to knock out everybody but you can knock it out when you're knocking it out okay and that is how you have to approach it and well that brings to the question do you talk to your spouse or your partner about what you need sexually or emotionally are you having those conversations yeah because if not you're gonna be having it as a grown man if you don't talk to her you're gonna talk to somebody about it you know, and I've said this for years. How if your spouse is not touching you, he's touching somebody mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so, not to be crass or anything, I'm just trying to say. I understand. One of the old dudes told me this. He said, "Everything you want to do with that mistress, you need to do with your your wife or your lady. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that with her, then you're gonna need that mistress. But to remove the need for the mistress, you need to do everything you want to with." Your wife. I thought that was word from God right there. That's wisdom. Yeah. So I try to talk to everybody about your partner needs to be the person that you communicate your needs with. And when it's not working, when it's not, you need to tell them. It's not something to get offended by, to run people away. You're just trying to come to a mutual agreement about what works. Yeah, I I think (laughs) it's definitely important to have that 
conversation and be honest because I remember one of my friends was asking me like, you know, husband wants do it every night before bed. It's like, I'm tired, the kids. And I said, well, you have to learn how to, to balance. And I told her, I said, what you do is you tell him, look, give me a few hours, get some sleep. And I say, you set your alarm. Now, when that alarm goes off, you have to honor that promise. So you're not saying no totally. You're just compromising on the win. And that will help instead of just saying, I don't feel, I don't feel like doing this, leave me alone, because then he's feeling rejected. But all you're saying is like, look, just, just let me take a little nap. And when this alarm go off at three o'clock, I got you. So you have to learn in a relationship to, you know, be open and honest and talk about things like that. And you can make that compromise because sending an alarm and putting a time on it is way better and honoring it is way better than just telling someone no, because you keep doing that. He's going to be thinking, oh, shit, she don't desire me. She don't want me. So you have to have open communication. But some people don't have that. But I think it's, an, it's very important that you do. I read somewhere where a woman was lying to her spouse. I think she said for 10 years about having an orgasm. Mm. So to me, that's betrayal on many levels. To me, it's not an honest relationship. Mm -hmm. For one, this man thought that he was doing something, right? So, but he wasn't. And if she would communicate to him about what she wanted and her needs, both would be happy. Mm -hmm. So instead of being honest with him, she just faked the funk. And I think they end up going through marriage counseling to work through all of that. Because that's, that's a lot of dishonesty and betrayal, in my opinion, mm-hmm. for a long period of time. Oh, and I don't know what her rationale was. I don't know what her rationale was if she didn't know how to say what she wanted, if she felt uncomfortable. Um, but it didn't serve the relationship any good. So you have to have those tough conversations about what you want, what you like, um, make time for each other and communicate. And Raquel, I think that's where the friendship comes in. Because I think if she thought of her husband as her friend, I think she would have been honest. But the fact that this went on for 10 years, that shows like a flaw in the relationship between the two of them. Because I think if your relationship is built on friendship, then you can talk about anything. I agree. Periodically, I get invited by my fraternity brothers to go places. and But things are not the same. This is not the 90s. Mm-hmm. All, all the girls went east and west and boys went north and south, right? <laughs> and so things are not the same. So it, it is not something that I'm going to go to a fraternity party and be with Shantae from 91. Because Shantae had three babies too. You know what I'm saying? So it's mm-hmm. not the same. So to me, it is better, and I say this all the time, it's better to pour that energy into your relationship than to go out trying to get around. And I don't know how we got here. I don't know why I brought this up. But I, lots of men, I find that when I speak to women, that their men like to prove their masculinity out when it's a great place to prove it in the house, you know, in multiple ways. I tell you, foreplay is always happening, right? So when you cook that dinner or you clean that floor, you know, that's foreplay as well. Mm-hmm. I'm always wondering about men why we tend to go. So that brings me back to the masculinity and the patriarchy thing. I think the patriarchy has blew itself up because of men just trying to knock down all the women in the planet 
and you committed to this one woman, but you having six babies outside of marriage, all kind of silly stuff. When you have everything you want in the house, if you treat it the way it needs to be treated, mm-hmm. if you if you honor that spot in the house, you can get anything you want at any time. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of women think about our looks and our body image. So I was just wondering, as men, do you worry about how you look? Do you worry about your hairline, your physique? Do men have body image issues? Yes. And can you talk about that a little bit? All throughout high school, I was pretty skinny and I was like insecure about it. I just didn't like the way that my body looked. And I was caught up in the mess of the expectations of I should be this size, I should look this way, I should have a face like this, you know what I mean? I should dress like this. And it took a couple of years, but then sorting through that and figuring out who I truly just wanted to be and what makes me happy and what I like to do took a while. But I think that definitely is a big thing. And I think it starts at a very young age. And I don't know if it goes away. Maybe Clay knows. But as of right now, <laughs> it's not a thing of, I guess it's not my ego talking anymore. It's more of just my pride. And I feel proud of how I feel and taking care of my body and my my bodily image. So that's kind of more my angle now, more than I'm doing this for looks and attention. Mm-hmm. It's shifted into this is for myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to piggyback off of what Cam said about not liking what you see. So I grew up chubby. I went through a big uh, weight loss journey when I was, it was 2011. I lost a hundred pounds in like 11 months that year. So it was like a new year's resolution and I really took it and ran with it. Um, And so I worked really, really hard, lost the weight, kept it off for a long time. And then in 2019, through 2022, I was on a, a mental health medication for my anxiety disorder is panic disorder. And uh, because I, you know, despite losing all that weight and growing up the way that I did, I now have come to understand that I live with what's called body dysmorphia, which is where your brain distorts what is reality. So I can look at myself in the mirror and see something very different, Mm. uh, you know? And so it's just a component of the anxiety and my own mental health, right? Uh, So anyway, 2019 through 2022, I'm taking this medication. I'm still working out five to six days a week. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, eating healthy, all of that. I gained 50 pounds because of this medication. Mm. Uh, And because of the body dysmorphia, I wasn't weighing myself regularly because my relationship with the scale Mm -hmm. was unhealthy. So, and it was also during COVID. So we were already wearing our sweatpants (laughs) and everything like that. So the weight gain wasn't as noticeable to me. Uh, And then when, so I came to the understanding like, hey, this medication is actually causing severe weight gain, uh, despite me working out like I'm supposed to and eating healthy and things like that, right? So I came off the medication. Uh, The past nine months, I've been losing that weight, that 50 pounds. The last time I checked, I'm seven pounds away from the 50. So I'm literally you y'all seen me drinking a bunch of water i'm actually doing a detox this week as i kind of go into like the last little bit i just want to kind of have like a reset for myself but uh, i posted a a reel on my instagram where i did like a split screen pick a video of me running last year on my birthday 
and then a video of me running now. And you can see the weight loss there. But the interesting about it, and I shared in the caption about the body dysmorphia and stuff, I can see for a moment that there's a big difference. But then if I look at that same video on a different day and a different mindset, I see the exact same thing. I don't see a difference. Mm -hmm. Or I'll zoom in because it's kind of like a slow motion running thing. And even though you can see the weight loss, I'm looking at because you lose weight, you have loose skin until your skin catches up with the weight loss, you know. And so then in the running video, I'm running without my shirt on, which is the first time that I've ever done that in my entire life, which is a milestone in and of itself. But I, you know, I'm looking at the video and I'm like, your skin, well, I look at it as fat, but it's the loose skin moving. And so then in my head, I'm judging that, right? So despite having lost basically 43 to 50, I haven't checked lately, but I've lost all this weight in nine months to undo something that was medication induced. But what I deal with are the the perception or the insecurities or how I feel in my own skin. And I felt this way when I lost 100 pounds in 2011, too. It took me years after losing all that weight to actually like myself because I was still dealing with the emotional component of growing up chubby, being bullied, being teased, all of that other stuff. So it wasn't like, oh, I lost the weight. I'm healed now. It's like, no, you got to go back and deal with all of that shit that you've been through leading up to this. And I think for me to have lost all that weight and then have this medication do this and then go from a, okay, I've lost all this weight again. And then it's like, now I'm going back to the, okay, now we're at where we want to be, but I have to catch up mentally. So it's understanding that it's not just a physical thing, but it's an emotional mm -hmm. thing. Um, and not everybody has body dysmorphia. Not everybody has an, a fully diagnosed anxiety disorder like I do, but I, I believe that it's more common than men let on. Uh, and I know this because I'm a therapist and I mm -hmm. get into people's business for a living. Uh, so many men are insecure about their bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I use, I always use myself as an example, as a way to break stigma, but not enough men are talking about it. Uh, and so yeah, to answer your question, men oftentimes are absolutely insecure about their bodies. Men are insecure about sex. Men are insecure about whether or not they're satisfying their partners. Mm -hmm. Men are insecure about their money. Men are insecure about uh, their place in the world, their status, their uh, all, all sorts of things. Anything that a woman will talk about that they're insecure about, men are insecure about it. And Sometimes it's actually worse because they don't actually talk about it because they're afraid to, because that we have part. to protect mm -hmm. uh, toxic masculinity. So, yes. And for, and thank, for thank me, for being, thank you being for a hairstylist, men are insecure about their hair. So we now have man weave. So, and it's a huge... Lock extension. Yeah, it's a huge um, market. So that's so telling me everything. that a lot of men, some men can do the bald head and look great. Some men, they can't ha not having their hair. So they are getting man weaves. I was trying to block the light because I wanted y'all to see that picture. And that picture is 1991. I could bench press 500 pounds. <laughs> and so it was, a, it was in the middle of a game, right? In the middle of a college game. And so years later, we were talking to to my son. And, and don't you want to be a football player? And he said, 
and my wife pointed to the picture. She said, like, Dad, he said, that's not Dad. That's a football player. Okay, so when you talk about <laughs> insecurities, when your son says, that's not Dad, that's a football player, and it's you, and he doesn't see you <laughs> in that picture, that's that insecurity that you hit. And everything you guys said is a thing that you have to fight against. You have to fight against. So to the point, COVID, because I was working and, and just eating, I gained 50 pounds and I had medical stuff that I've been dealing with for 20 years that I've had up and down. So I can't afford to gain this weight. So I'm working on losing it and I'm, I'm doing okay at it. But this is the thing. You have to be bigger than your insecurities. So you hear those stories, especially men. So if you compared yourself to any different man on any given day, you you have not had as many women as he had. You ain't as strong as he had. You ain't had the nicest cars as he has. You don't have as much money as he has. Because even though they all lying, you still take it all on. Like <laughs> that's the truth. You know, like that dude that I was that I'm seeing. He's saying he having sex with his wife four times a week. That ain't happening, man. What? So. I've had some sensitivity to that as it has happened to me, you know? So maybe at 20, I was like, I'm always be the man, blah, blah, blah. But at 52, you know, you got to realize that you can't do everything and that nobody has it all. Mm-hmm. And nobody has it all under control. Comparison is the thief of joy. That's one of my favorite sayings. Yes. Cam had said it too. He said now fitness for him is doing it for him. Um, and that's a, I, I wanted to remember to come back to that. So I shared kind of my story, but working out now is not only about the number on the scale, but it's because working out is part of my self-care Yeah, and it is very important to managing my mental health, especially in coming off of a particular medication and, you know, yeah, I still take medication for my mental health, but it's a difference, you know? And so I use that as a holistic component to manage my mental health, but I don't work out to weigh a certain amount. I'm working out because it makes me feel good. And also I will say I'm stronger than I've ever been in my life because I can do 150 asynchronous pull-ups in a single workout, you know, and I was never able to do a single pull-up ever in those like school fitness tests. Right. (laughs) So I'm able to do stuff that, and I'm doing it for me, not because uh, I want to look a a certain way. It's because I'm doing it because I want to care for my body and Mm -hmm. I want to feel good in Mm -hmm. the body that I live in. Mm -hmm. That's important. So I'm wearing a shirt. DDPY. This is what I do for the most part, which is Diamond Dallas Page Yoga, right? Mm. So if you remember Diamond Dallas Page from the day, I don't know if you guys seen this video. This, this man, he was on crutches and he couldn't walk. And then he started doing DDPY. And at the end, he was running. His name is Arthur Borman. Mm. And, and Arthur was the number one proponent of DDPY. But DDPY takes you where you are. So it starts in the bed or, you know, after a surgery, you can do chair yoga. So when I fell this year, I was back in the chair doing stuff, but it was building strength, building muscle and building flexibility. And to me, those are the only things I need. I don't need to bench press 500 pounds. 
Mm-hmm. I need to be flexible. I need to be walking. I need to be moving so that any grandchildren that come along the way, I'm available for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so DDPY has been a, a godsend for me because it allowed me to be flexible. And I thought it was, it was not yoga. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So if you grew up in the nineties and all the boys I play football with, if we talk about yoga, you know, you, you soft, right? <laughs> and so for real, for real, this became that in DDP and Adam Dow's page talks about the fact that this is not yoga. Like you think of yoga on purpose. So men would do it because mm. men wouldn't do it if they thought it was soft. Right. Yeah, I was going to say most men probably like yoga. They're like, no, nah, right. taking no yoga. And so you get the <laughs> movements and the benefits from yoga, but it's not, the, so the poses are the same. But he'll change the name from warrior pose to road warrior pose, right? So people remember the road warriors. And so road warrior pose is just like the road warriors. And you say, what a rush. And so he did a lot of different things. So I'm just saying all the movements have different names, but they're based in yoga and in rehab. So you learn how to reteach yourself the development of strength. So my strength is different than it mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. you know, but it still gives me a place to go and I still have things and goals to reach without feeling like, you know, I've done all I can do. Or when I was lifting weights heavy, if I bumped into a weight, I felt like I gained 10 pounds. it's sad that that you know there's a stigmatism around yoga you know being like female only because yoga is amazing like it it is amazing it is it is it has changed my mind but so i I wouldn't have done it if even rock if rock came to me and said clay you need to do yoga i would say yeah rock okay (laughs) but because it was ddp because diamond dollar page i was like okay that was some credibility to me and so when we talk about like, make sure we don't leave anybody behind, we have to be talking to all the people. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people are are stuck in certain time frames, so you have to have people who relate to everybody, so that we all can yeah. come along. Which comes back to what we we're talking about earlier. Lots of times, lots of things are not talking to the same group. So I think we never get to know all about millennials because we hear bad this bad things about them. Right. They're lazy. They don't work hard. That ain't right. true for y'all. That is not true. Right. right. But I never would have known that. I would have known that, but I, many people wouldn't have known that if they did not have an opportunity to interact with people. Mm-hmm. That's true. Do you guys practice self-care on a regular basis? Every day. Morning to the, the sundown. Every so what do you day. what what is your typical self-care day consistent? Um, I don't have a day. It's it's really I built it into my daily life. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I have to recenter myself. That's one big thing is I can feel myself when I start to go too far to one side. So really it starts with I finally found a morning routine that is beneficial. And I think that was probably the biggest thing that I was missing for a while. And it really just consists of like staying off my phone in the morning, getting up getting mm-hmm. showered, going to the gym. That is the first thing. Then coming back and I do like not a fasting, but I don't really eat until about the afternoon mm-hmm. to about evening. And I pretty much just have a protein shake. It consists of journaling, meditation, 
any breathing work if I'm feeling a little bit anxious. Mm-hmm. And I will typically, like if I've had a, a busy week, I try to get out to like the lake and I'll stargaze. And that's typically what I'll do on like a Friday or Saturday night where it's like people are going out to the bars. I'm mm-hmm. pretty much doing some self-care or just doing anything that's going to benefit me and and make me feel a better me rather than like destroying me piece by piece. Mm-hmm. So, and and reading, exposing myself to a lot of knowledge. That's good. Very good. Johnson, I know you are into massages. So, <laughs> yes, I, well, I was up until more recently, I was going weekly for uh, massage therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then funny enough, at my gym, I entered this like, giveaway that they were doing for like this i don't know four hundred dollar like theragun like massage oh, yeah. gun uh-huh. and somehow i won oh um, cool and so i was going weekly for massage therapy but then i got that thing okay like, yeah they're awesome <laughs> i canceled my recurring appointment because it it's doing a great job uh, mm-hmm. but yeah massage therapy is a big part i take mental health medication. I do have a morning routine. I work out five to six days a week. I told you I'm kind of at the end of like a little weight loss journey, but I'm doing intermittent fasting. I write, I'm a writer, I podcast, I read multiple books at the same time. I make sure that I'm pouring into myself. I I do have good boundaries with social media as well. I'm very diligent with how I budget my time because, and you can ask my wife, she'll try to send me links to TikToks and I'm like, no, don't (laughs) stop sending me these links. And she'll get offended. And I'm like, I do not have time to, I I don't want to watch a viral video (laughs) that would distract me from this book that I'm trying to read or this, this essay that I'm trying to write. I'm very intentional about budgeting my time because for me, that self-care, if I'm not, say, taking care of my body, taking care of my creative outlets like writing and stuff like that, if I'm not doing those sorts of things, my mental health takes a dip. So I have to have that balance in order to do those things. And the low value things that don't do anything for me, but take from me, it better be something that pays me. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's that's me lately. Self-care is non-negotiable for me. Clay? Yeah, I agree. I was late to self-care because I was like, you know, we just need to go hard, right? When I went through that depression in the middle of COVID, one of my last little vestiges of my last little thing that I need to get rid of, but I've been holding back for some reason. Smoking cigars, man. That's Mm -hmm. one thing that I, I love. And I don't love the smoking of the cigar or smoking of the pipe. I just like the relaxation of the activity itself mm-hmm. and i was doing it every day during covid so i backed way off of that but it is one of those things but you know getting the workout in making sure i get some bible study in, making sure i get time i'm gonna tell you prayer time for me has been <coughs> time and you can do it whenever when you're walking in the shower whenever but it has to not be just a monologue but a dialogue okay so you have to get some time to get the insight back from whatever you're speaking, but it will it will talk to you if you just spend some time waiting for it to talk to you. It will give you some insight on whatever situation you are muddling around in your head. But those are necessary things. To be able to function, to be able to be good, you got to take care of you, and you can feel it when you're running down. 
when you're out of balance, you can feel it. You know, mm-hmm. you, you get tired or you feel something coming on. You got to get back in balance mm-hmm. or you will have to deal with something, some sort of illness or something. Well, <clears throat> part of self-care is getting your checkups and going to the doctors. And I know there's a stereotype that men do not like going to the doctors for checkups. <laughs> can you guys talk a little bit about that? Do you make that a priority as part of your self-care, getting your regular checkups? As much as I spend on this shitty health insurance, you better believe I'm going for my, quote, free checkup. Absolutely. I want every morsel of every penny. Mm-hmm. Well, you're the exception. You got to, though. You have to take care of you. So uh, came this realization talking about being here for those grandkids, right? Mm-hmm. And we were looking at some things that are just long-term health stuff. You got to make sure you get it and you catch it early enough. Mm-hmm. So if there is a problem, you can get it fixed. That's mm-hmm. true. You can't lollygag and, and avoid it and then be mad when you waited too late for something. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you want to or not, got to bite the bullet and go see somebody and get all your checkups. You know? Well, those checkups include your colonoscopy, depending on what age you are, and getting your prostate checked. And I know a lot of men have issues with getting those two things done. It's tied into their sexuality. Have you seen that in your practice or personally, I guess, is the question. The way people who I know who have had prostate cancer, they still say that if it's done right and caught early, they still can be as active as they can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, getting those checks are just, you know, you pay the cost to be the boss. It's the nature of it. Mm-hmm. It don't take nothing from you to turn and cough. When you need a pep talk, pep yourself up. Hey, I'm still a man. Mm-hmm. Or whatever you need to say, but mm-hmm. you got to do it. Mm-hmm. And those colonoscopies, the prep is worse than the, than it the test. Itself. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. definitely. I think men have the wrong intention a lot of the times. Like something like that to me, it's simple because it's your intention. You're there for your health reasons. Right. You're there to make sure your body's good, nothing else. So like mm-hmm. it's not taking anything away from your manhood, but so many guys would beg to differ. Mm-hmm. And it's costing them. Men are dying younger yeah. and younger from colon cancer and prostate cancer. And it's preventable if you get those tests done. Wait, isn't that isn't that 50 though? For... The colon, I know. Colon is, they dropped the age. It used to be, I think it's 45 now. Mm -hmm. It used to be older. And prostate, I'm not quite sure. That might be 50. I feel like that's 50. Whatever that is, I've been through it all and you just got to do it. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. You just do it. You know, it's like eating broccoli or any daggum thing else. You just do it. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't turn to the left or to the right. You just go ahead and get it done and get it over with. And get the results and make sure you're good to go. Yeah, because us women, we don't we don't really like going to our gynecologist, but we know we have to do it. So <laughs> it's no fun for us either. Do you have a preference over a male or female doctor? Is that an issue for you guys? Because I know some men, they're like, I have to have a female doctor. I can't have a male doctor. I grew up with a male doctor. I'd want to say so. It's like it's no issue because like my intention has always been the same. It's intention. like it. Yeah. In my mind, it's just this is for my body. This is for my health. It's as simple as that. So, yeah, there's nothing more to it. I think if you read further beyond it, then it's, again, your ego talking. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. So how do you guys feel about the metrosexual male? What is that? <laughs> that's that's like a man that enjoys getting, you know, manicures, pedicures. He likes to shop, you know, sharp looking. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like um, that term isn't used that much anymore. Yeah. Mm, good point. What do you think they call it now? I mean, it goes back to when you asked the question in the first part about what is a man? And my answer was a man is a human. Mm -hmm. And so you're a person first. And so if you want to do, that's the thing too. Like we, as a social construct, we put certain activities (laughs) onto this is feminine. This is masculine, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, my answer to the question is one that's a, for me, obsolete term, because I believe that any human can exist on a spectrum. And Mm -hmm. first of all, we don't neatly fit into the box of male or female, most people. And even in that box, you can't fit into the, the box because you're a black male, or you're a biracial black male, or you're a biracial black male from this socioeconomic status like we have so many different you know bins that we put a chip in you know so to to say like oh well you if you do these certain sorts of things you're metrosexual or whatever it's like no when you said the things about what defines a a metrosexual person that sounds like the conversation we just had about self-care yeah Mm -hmm. exactly Um, so you're a human who wants to take take care of yourself (laughs) yep where's the problem (laughs) don't see one we're coming to an end we just wanted to give you an opportunity if there's any last thoughts a takeaway for the audience anything you want to share about this discussion yeah i would like to say that hopefully you can hear from the conversation i hope that there is no box to put a man in people are people exist and you can't just box them up and put them in something that needs because we all spill out of whatever box you want to put us in into all of different types of genres and everything. So, mm-hmm. you know, I hope that is something that everybody takes away that that they can learn something from. Good. Thank you. That's good. Jazel, I see you thinking. <laughs> I say this a lot to my clients when I sign off of sessions. My refrain is be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. And it sounds simple, but everything that has come out of my mouth in part one and part two comes from a place of I am a human being first and foremost, before I'm a therapist, before I'm somebody's father, before I'm somebody's spouse, before I'm somebody's friend. And each day with everything that I do, I am trying my best to be kind to myself and as a byproduct, teaching other people to be kind to themselves. So if you ask me, what is my takeaway or to give to the audience? I would say, be kind to yourself in whatever capacity you have today to do that good advice it's easier said than done (laughs) yes good words to live by though or try to live by anyway well it's been a joy it's been nice hearing different perspectives right i think when virginia and i talked about this we had we were talking about men and we had questions and although we have men in our lives it's like why don't we just talk to other men and see what are you guys thinking I appreciate the honesty and the vulnerability. I think the stereotype that men don't talk about feelings or share 
you guys debunked that mm-hmm. completely. So uh, thank you for that. Appreciate having you guys here on our podcast. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good night. Night, everyone. Night. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.